when people who should appreciate and respect you, and this could be a parent or a child or a friend or a family member or somebody at work, but when somebody who should appreciate and respect you despises you, insults you, belittles you, when that happens to anybody, and sooner or later, it pretty much happens to everybody once or twice, but when that kind of thing happens, it hurts. I mean, it's traumatic. But one thing we do have going for us when that happens is our Lord Jesus knows exactly what rejection feels like. And we're going to see him being rejected at the very beginning of his ministry with the people who know him best, who don't need a sign. He doesn't do a sign in Nazareth. He's basically saying, you know me for 30 years. You should realize what I'm saying lines up. Somebody said, and I think this is really helpful uh, when you're dealing with the face of rejection, uh, as a believer, rejection is not someone wanting you out of their life. Rejection is someone that God wanted out of your future. And I think that's very helpful. And we're going to see uh, that the Lord doesn't give up his ministry, uh, doesn't doubt powder drop out when he goes back home, teaches the scripture clearly, claims to be Messiah, and they try to kill him. A mob gathers at the synagogue, runs him out of town, is going to throw him off a cliff. Uh, that's that's rejection, and I think it kind of in a in a small sense sets up the fact that not just this city, but the entire Jewish nation, by and large, many individual exceptions, and the world at large rejects him to this day or morphs him into something that he's not really at all. So we come to letter K in uh, our life of Christ A through Z system. And we see the Lord return to his hometown, Nazareth, in the early phase of his public ministry. And while the homies at first seem impressed, I mean, Jesus has been rubbing shoulders with national celebrities like John the Baptist and Nicodemus. Um, and he's done miracles in Cana, Jerusalem, uh, Samaria, uh, Capernaum, uh, while the hometown folks are impressed at the buzz he's generating, they very quickly turn on him. They change their tune. And the thing that is the tipping point is Jesus has the audacity to claim to be the Messiah, unmistakably from the Old Testament scriptures, and that's what causes them to hate him. But uh, rather than describing this scene as a triumphant hometown boy, made good, and let's celebrate the fact he's now on the national screen. What you're going to see in this passage is hometown boy made them good and mad. And sometimes you can't help but people make, make people mad by doing the right thing. Uh, I don't think Jesus says, uh, uh, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing in a, in a rude or even an authoritative way, even though he could have just authoritatively said it. I think he says it with a smile on his face. And probably a soft voice, but that's all it took to push him over the edge. First uh, John 5 says, Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You might say that everybody believes that. Isn't that his last name? Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. It's one of his most important titles. And it emphasizes that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him, right? The exclusive issue, exclusive issue work. So that, those are fighting words. In his day, fighting words in our day. We're going to look at this incident. I think it's often um, overlooked and overemphasized that his hometown rejects him from the very get-go. But what happens here is significant, and we're going to see some principles, one of which is seeing Jesus did not always lead to believing in Jesus. And that's true to this day. So uh, let's prepare to receive the Word of God for what it is, transforming truth. And as we pray for our teachability, let's pray for troops, peace officers, and firefighters. And Clay, pray for us in that direction, would you? Thank you. Now, Clay and Henry and maybe Jamie, they won't tell you this, but uh, they love the Word of God, love the Lord. But their favorite part of Pastor Brad's presentation are these abstract thought warmer-uppers. They don't always, they don't always laugh out loud because of the peer pressure but I can tell you, I can tell you they do, uh, they do enjoy this. And today I've got a kind of a unique abstract thought warmer up. I want to talk about a tale of two cities, which makes you think of uh, Dickens. This is really a tale of one city whose name had two possible 
pronunciations. An Oklahoma couple uh, recently went to Michigan. No, I'm talking about a different couple. Uh, Oklahoma couple recently took a road trip to Big Sky Country. They drove through and enjoyed the uh, beauties of Montana and Wyoming, and then they were driving through uh, Idaho, and uh, it's about noontime, and they saw this this sign when they reached the city limits. And the wife said, wow, you know, I've never heard of Coupon, Idaho. And the husband said, it's not pronounced Coupon, it's pronounced Coupon, Idaho. She said, oh, you're, you're wrong. And they were, were going back and forth on that. And he said, look, it's about noon. Here's what we're going to do. Let's, let's eat here in town, and we'll ask the server, you know, how they pronounce the name of the town. So they go to the parking lot, get out, go to the counter. Uh, the lady's coming to take their order, and the guy says, hey, we want to order lunch, but first, I want you to say very slowly and very clearly, what is the name of this place? And she said, okay, Burger King. <laughs> See, that was pretty good. Uh, Life of Christ, A through Z. Today we come to letter K, one of my personal favorite letters, Debbie K. Walker, right? And let's uh, put these events on the map because it's important to emphasize uh, these are real events involving real people in real places. Letter A stands for angels announce the pregnancies, first of John the Baptist to his dad, Zacharias, in Jerusalem, and secondly to Mary, and three or four months later to Joseph in Nazareth, the supernatural virgin conception of Jesus. So that's A, angels announce. B, birth in Bethlehem. C, carpentry career. Tecton means a skilled worker in wood or stone. We'll look at mosaic floors just north of Nazareth next May, that some of which Jesus may have laid himself. So that's C, carpentry career. D and E go together. At the very beginning phases of his public ministry, when he's about 30, according to Luke, his righteousness is declared at D. Dove descends at the Duncan, and the voice of God the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. His righteousness is declared, and then he immediately goes and does spiritual combat with Satan, in which he demonstrates his righteousness. So we know... Uh, very little of the details of Jesus' life from age 12 until this point, but we know he lived a perfectly righteous life. He's fully qualified to be our sin bearer. He has no sin of his own. And at D, dove descends at the baptism. His righteousness is declared. Through E, enemy entices. His righteousness is demonstrated. Now, after he spars with Lucifer, he goes back to the area where John the Baptist is baptizing and attracts his first followers. That's it, first followers, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. What happens after that? Well, G, those five men that are from the northern region, like Jesus was and is, uh, return to that area, and we're told they're invited to a wedding reception. Uh, and that's where he does his first miracle in Cana of Galilee. Great guests is what G stands for. It was at EFGH. H is harsh house cleaning. Look, we go from the northern region, Galilee, to the southern region, Judea, specifically back to Jerusalem, where Jesus, at the very beginning of his public ministry, says, I do not accept the corrupt status of this religious system that's been based on the Old Testament scriptures, but it's been perverted. And people are doing rituals the wrong way for the wrong reasons, and the profit motive, P-R-O-F-I-T, is a big factor in that. The church is not a business. It has some business functions. I was I always hate it when ministers refer to the, what they do as a job. I don't consider it a job. I've had jobs. I could probably get another job, but I, it's got vocational aspects. But if it's just a job, go get a regular job. Don't don't you know you got you got to have reasons to want to go into ministry. I think, and it's got vocational aspects, including a paycheck. But it's not a job. Uh, but uh, the religious leaders had made this a job in which they made a lot of money, uh, and Jesus said, I reject it. He put the, the money changers out of business for that one afternoon, and they say, you have to be the Christ to have authority over us. And he says, I'll prove it. What's the ultimate miracle of Jesus? The resurrection, right? The whole gospel hangs on that. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. So that's H. I, we're still in Jerusalem. Jesus interacts with Nicodemus. 
trying to earn salvation as a do-it-yourself project, but fearful he's not quite good enough. And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. This is not about something you achieve. It's something you receive. It's not something you do for God. It's something I'm going to do for you and give you. Uh, God the Father loved the world so much, he gave me his son that whosoever, and the Greek says, all of the ones who believe shall not perish like a fire, but have as a present abiding possession everlasting life. It's too good to be true, but it is true. That's I. Nobody is so good they don't need salvation by faith in Christ. J, jive talking at Jacob's well. The polar opposite of Nicodemus is the woman at the well. We don't even know her name. She's irreligious. She's been immoral. Nobody's so bad they can't be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he tells her. He, with no preconditions, he offers her eternal life as living water. Um, now, today we come to K, which stands for kin, extended family and friends, uh, and his peeps uh, from his hometown kick him out of town. And we're going to see uh, the claims that Jesus made for himself led some to believe but drove others batty. I'm getting the believe in batty alliteration going there. And let's read verses 16 through 19. First, the Lord enters the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and at Sabbath services, Saturday morning services, reads from the book of Isaiah, right? I'm reading from the New American Standard. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, where he worked as a tecton from age 12 apprentice all the way until he was 30 years old, 18 years. And as was his custom, he went every Sabbath day to the synagogue, and more than that, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book, really a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, same book of Isaiah you've got in your Old Testament, was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place, what we would call chapter 61, pretty deep into the 66th chapter book, and he reads this passage. And I think he did use some emphasis here, Dustin, because he's talking about himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the servant of the Lord in prophecy, the Savior being quoted in this passage, and that's who's reading it, right? Jesus is the servant of the Lord. So I think he said something like this. Now watch this. Hey, Connor, this is Jesus taking a book in your Old Testament and reading it at the church service in the Jewish city they call a synagogue and saying, this is talking about me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. And Jesus said, saying, I'm him, because he, the Lord, has anointed me through the Spirit to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight, spiritual sight to the blind, even though he does heal physically some blind folks, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Boom, that may not sound that impressive, but that is a slam dunk, grand slam home run, bottom of the ninth inning. Uh, the Lord is reading. Wasn't that lucky? They just happened to be on that passage that, that he was so lucky. I mean, it just worked out just perfectly because this is a really nice summary of everything Isaiah has said in the second half of his book of the servant uh, of the Lord uh, theme that he has. And so on his first Passover of his ministry, just after the first Passover, Jesus returns to Nazareth, his hometown, and on Saturday morning is asked to read the scripture. So he's happy to do it, and it just happened to be 61. Isaiah 61 is all about him. Wow. Now, notice this. Um, I like to say, you know, one approach to, to doing Bible study, just when at home or when you're doing it yourself, is read the scripture interpret the scripture, and then apply the scripture. Now, sometimes us Dallas Seminary types that really are big on Bible exposition, uh, people will say, well, they, they teach the scripture, but they never apply the scripture. Well, I think, you know, actually, I've, I've not met a single Dallas Seminary guy who thinks he shouldn't apply the scripture, at least in principle, and he definitely thinks all the people sitting under him should apply the scripture, you know? So th- those are three interesting steps, and I think you've seen Jesus do that here. He reads the scripture, in the passage we just read, 16 through 19. He's going to interpret the scripture in a very short sermon. I mean, so, you know, short sermons are biblical, but so are long ones. In Acts 20, Paul preaches till midnight, and the guy falls asleep and falls out of the second floor of the church. So number two, don't sit in the windowsill at church, especially on the second floor, if you've got a long-winded preacher. So that's that's one reason we only have a ground floor around here. He read the scripture, he interpreted the scripture, 
And then the congregation misapplies the scripture here. Talking about synagogue, the synagogue is not directly mandated by the Old Testament, but when the Babylonians conquered and then the, the Israel in 586 and then took most of the folks to Babylon, they had no temple. How are they going to do Judaism without a temple? Answer is the synagogue. It's not the central sanctuary, but it's, it's kind of like our church. And in the early church was in many ways analogous to the kind of basic operation of the synagogue with more information, of course. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have a bleached out picture of that? Uh, we're, in, that's, we're in Nazareth today, but this is uh, ruins of a synagogue in Capernaum. And we're going to go from Nazareth to Capernaum next week because that's going to become the base of operations. That's a picture I took of the ruins of the fourth, early fourth century, 300s uh, AD synagogue. That's that's the remains there in Capernaum, where Jesus would have been worshiping and teaching many, many times. Just to prove uh, that wasn't just from uh, Google Images. Let's see, is that Ron Miller's on this slide somewhere? Let's see, where is uh, he? Now he's right there. That's Ron Miller. So that's that's really us there. And I mean. Homer does a lot of nice things under the radar for us at TBF, but something that really impressed me that day was he, out of his own pocket, he rented a helicopter and a pilot, he flew over the the site in Capernaum, and then he hung off the bottom of the tread and took pictures. And this is one of the pictures Homer took of Capernaum, and there we were kind of standing there looking back that way at those ruins there. Now this spaceship is a group of aliens that that landed right after the preaching minute. No, actually, this is a uh, high-tech, modern church that the Roman Catholics built on top of the ruins of Peter's house. At least there's a late first century inscription in the ruins under the church that says this is where Peter lived. And we know that uh, after a synagogue service, Jesus will go across the street and heal Peter's mother-in-law. Now, what do you, if Peter had a mother-in-law, what does that mean he also had? So the first pope had a wife. So, you know, anybody notice that? No. Just point of interest. Uh, Omer had the helicopter guy swing around. We're in a fishing village here in Capernaum. There's the fancy church. There's the synagogue ruin. So we're talking about real places, real events. And then here's my, I think, last picture of this right now. No, one, two more. This is a statue of Homer. After they saw him <laughs> hanging from the tread, taking that, we're going to have to build a statue of this guy. Now, that's actually Peter, uh, that's the big fisherman, and there's Jamie and Kristen. As you go out of the parking lot toward the synagogue, you go through that gate, and uh, we will take a group picture there, Lord willing, next to May. Uh, yeah, I said the ruins of this are 3rd century, 4th uh, century, uh, the 300s, but the sp- stone that's much darker would be the floor from the church that uh, Jesus would have interacted with in the 1st century. Uh, so we're talking about real places here as we talk about Nazareth and we're talking about Capernaum nearby. But I want you to notice this passage that Jesus reads from. It's Isaiah 61 in the very first part of verse 2, the way we break down the verses nowadays, is an Old Testament passage that refers to all three members of the Trinity in concert. Uh, last Wednesday night, uh, Nabil talked about the, the gospel and the Trinity and and uh, the week before, we talked about the deed of Christ, you know, in our Wednesday night uh, Seeking Allah series. And, uh, you know, I when people have trouble with the Trinity, I like to go to the Great Commission, uh, you know, Matthew 28, uh, go in all the world, make disciples, teaching them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I think another good place to go is the baptism of Jesus, where you see Jesus being baptized, you see the Spirit descending visibly and the voice of God the Father speaking, so you got all three persons there. The very last verse of 2 Corinthians has a benediction starting with the name of Jesus. That's strongly emphasizing his deity along with the Father and the Spirit. Uh, first part of Revelation talks about the Trinity in like verse 6 with Jesus first emphasizing his deity. But you've got passages, and this isn't the only one, but he's citing Isaiah 61 here. Another one that's quite clear, I think, is Isaiah 48, 16. Just, I think that's in your notes. Just jot that down if you want to look at that later. But uh, make no mistake, we're seeing God the Father as the Lord has sent me, the spirit, the, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, and anointed me with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so we're talking about uh, 
the deity of Christ and the reality of the triune God. Uh, so Jesus reads the passage. Now he's going to uh, interpret the passage and relate it directly to the audience. And verse 20 says, and he closed the book, rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the guy, and he sat down. Now, I know Pam and Homer knew this before I got here 30 years ago, but I've said it many times. Ken, uh, beware of picturing First Baptist Church or First Methodist Church or Tangway Bible Fellowship Church where uh, Mike Palavik today read the call to worship and then he sat down. What did that mean? He was done for that moment doing his thing. But Jesus would have sat down on a stool in front of the synagogue. You stand up to read the scripture, and then you sit on a stool to teach the scripture or to interpret the scripture. That was the the procedure. So he's giving a word of exhortation or explanation here. And what does he say? He closed the book. Everybody's looking at him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture, Isaiah 61, which is quoting the Messiah, is about me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing because the Messiah is reading that passage to you. And all were, that imperfect there is something, had been leading up to this service, had been speaking well of him. I mean, he's had a buzz going. He's been out of town. He's rubbed shoulders with John the Baptist, Nicodemus. Those are big celebrities. We've heard he's done miracles in Cana. And one he did in Cana that applied to Capernaum, the royal official in John 4, which had, took place right after Jesus left Samaria. He did miracles in Jerusalem. There's a big buzz about him. Hometown boy made good. They've been speaking well of him. He carries himself nicely. But they're saying, hold on. He's claiming to be the Messiah. Are you kidding me? Yeshua, the guy that laid my tile floor a few years ago, is claiming to be the the center point of all of scriptural history. Are you got to be kidding me? And I think Jesus is thinking, you got to be kidding me. You don't believe this. You know me well enough to realize by my character who I am. You don't hear him cited like he should anymore, but Martin Luther King famously said, that he dreamed of a day when people would be judged not by the color of their skin. That would be irrelevant, but by the content of their character. You know, that's not what the radical left saying anymore. It's a whole different agenda. But when you have a great quote like that, it's worth it's worth um, emphasizing. And uh, for me, I, I, I often cite this when I'm talking to people about the gospel, you know, uh, you know, the disciples may have thought Jesus was the Savior, but he never thought he was the Messiah. Yeah, he did. The very first thing he did when he went home after the ministry starts is read Isaiah 61 and say, that's about me. The scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, and you can always tell by their reaction. There's a bunch of buzz there. They're excited that he's kind of putting Nazareth on the map. But when he says what he says there, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. They're saying, who does this guy think he is? We knew his dad, Right. Not really his dad, but the, his, you know, legal dad. And he said to them, no doubt you'll quote this proverb, and it's not a biblical proverb, just kind of a common saying at the time. Physician, heal yourself. Before you work on me, I want you to kind of be able to show, prove that you're a legitimate physician. And I know you're thinking, do a miracle for us, and then we'd believe. I think the Lord doesn't do a miracle here because They've got more than enough information to know everything he's saying about himself is true based on 18 years of living as an adult. After your bar mitzvahs, you've seen as an adult, right, James? They've known him for 18 years from 12 up. What more can I do for you? You know, you, you ought to be waiting for this as opposed to second guessing it and overreacting in a very violent way toward it, right? So when he says, in effect, he's the Messiah, I'm the fulfillment of this passage. Um, this passage talks about me. Again, the term Christ literally means anointed one. And it goes back to Psalm 2. But it came to mean the anointed one God had chosen to take care of the sin problem. You know, uh, Now watch this. We forget this sometimes. Is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels, are those in the New Testament or the Old Testament? I'm going to say New Testament. However, they're written on this side... They're New Testament books, but when they're talking about Jesus, hey Jack, and by, by the way, congrats Jack. Jack got his driver's license this week. And so, if you need somebody to make deliveries for you or pick, do errands for you, he, he's got wheels. He can do it. 
He's a, he's a fully licensed driver. He's a very careful driver, too. Um, but watch this. Uh, Lori, uh, Luke was written in about, uh, the Gospel of Luke was written about 60, probably summer of 60 A.D. out here somewhere. But in Luke 4, he's talking about events, Anthony, that took place. Did Luke 4 happen before the crucifixion? The events? That's not, that's not a trick question, okay? He's got to be teaching in the synagogue before the crucifixion, right? Talking about this kind of thing. And so they're listening. His original audience are listening with Old Testament ears, and they know what he's saying. You're claiming to be the one the Old Testament promises to take care of the sin problem and ultimately the rule of the whole world, and you're a really good guy, and I can think of nothing wrong with your character, but you're just a guy who works with his hands, right? So don't forget that as you read the Gospels. You're reading New Testament truth that's in an Old Testament setting. Christ is the end of the Old Testament law for those who believe because that was spirituality on training wheels as a tractor beam to get us to the cross and no longer is it the basis of uh, spirituality and it was never the basis of salvation, right? Sonia, what's the thing we always do? The Old Testament law wasn't a ladder that would allow you to climb to God, but it was a mirror and still is that shows you you're dirty and you need a savior. So, you look at the Old Testament prophecies, and some of them look obscure, but when you put the picture together, and these people would have had a comprehensive sense of all this Old Testament scriptural stuff talking about the Messiah, Jesus is saying, that's me. All that stuff about who the Messiah is going to be, where he's going to be, when he's going to come, what he's going to do, and why he's going to do it, that's me. And they should have known him well enough to realize that really lines up, but they can't buy it. They just totally uh, reject it. So he says, hey, I know you're thinking, why don't you do some miracles here? You know, like the one you did in Capernaum when you were in Cana just now and the nobleman's son was in Capernaum and he healed that, uh, that kid there. Uh, so do that in your own hometown. I think he's saying, I don't need to do that. You've got more than enough information based on what I've just told you in 18 years of knowing me. And he says, here's the another proverb. Uh, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. An expert's always somebody from more than 100 miles away who knows the vocabulary. The local people aren't experts because we know them. You know, we know where they live. We watch them mow their grass. you got to bring in somebody from out of town and pay them more than they deserve to be a consultant to tell you stuff you really don't need to do, right? But I say to you, as examples, uh, when you think about the two most bombastic, and I mean that in a good sense, prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and his mentee, Elisha, they were ministering in a period of great national apostasy, and they did miracles, but they do fewer miracles the more the light spread because they get no, 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 no ne- negative responses from the people by and large. So much so, they're doing miracles for Gentiles that are open as opposed to the Jews that should have been the major recipients of their, their power. But I say to you, the fact that sometimes prophets are misunderstood, mis- not appreciated, despised, like they're despising who Jesus is. But I say to you, in truth, Jesus says that there are many widows in, in Israel. And he's not going to do a miracle here, I think is part of what he's saying. I'm not going to do a miracle here. Miracles are rare, and they're done to kind of catalyze faith. But they're not going to be done if they're just going to harden your unbelief. There are a lot of widows in Israel, but uh, the one widow that he really helped uh, raise up her son was this lady who was a Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. But he only healed one, Naaman, who wasn't uh, even a a Jew. He was Syrian. Uh, And so all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage because they know he's talking about them when they heard these things. And it goes on, but I'll stop right there for a second. I've always thought when I I read uh, this short interpretation of Isaiah 61, today this scripture has been filled in your hearing, I've always thought of what Jesus said, and we saw this last week at the uh, at the well in Sychar. You know, the woman at the well says, uh, we know that the Messiah is coming. We know that the servant of the Lord is coming, the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us everything. And what does Jesus say to her then? I who speak to you am he. What does he mean by that? I am the Christ. When he reads Isaiah 61, Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. Yahweh's anointed me. Preach the gospel of the poor. I'm the issue of eternal life. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's he saying there, Steve? He's saying that's me, right? And they understood that. Um, Isaiah 53, 
Isaiah, 60, Isaiah 61 is the passage he reads here. Isaiah 60, 53, though, is that passage, the whole chapter reads like New Testament gospel. It's so clear, so specific. The, the Messiah will, will suffer for the sins, and yet God will see him after he suffers and after he's, he's killed. And it's, it's so specific that scholars wanted to do something very special with that chapter. And maybe to a lesser extent, Isaiah 61 is quite clear. And here in Luke, it's obvious Jesus says, that's talking about me. Uh, there's no way you can miss it. And so these passages in Isaiah are so clear that until an event in the late 1940s, many liberal uh, critical scholars said, there's no way Isaiah 53 that was that specific about Jesus in 700 B.C. when Isaiah wrote it, or whenever it was written, but it's clearly written in the B.C. era, they would say. Isaiah 61 is so clear, and it's so lucky he happened to have that the bookmark at that place. I don't believe in luck, by the way. In part because it's bad luck to be superstitious, and that's, I'm just not going to go there. Um, but yeah, so there was a tendency until the late 1940s to say, well, all these passages in Isaiah, especially that seem so specific about Jesus, must have been added by Christians in the first century. And at that point, the earliest Old Testament manuscripts we had were dated 1000 A.D. So saying, hey, we don't even have any uh, texts until 1,000 years roughly after the life of Christ. So some Christians must have changed that, right? But the event that happened in the late 1940s was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you hear people talking about that, and I've said this many times, but the prize of the Dead Sea Scrolls wasn't the, the book of the Essenes talking about the sons of light and the sons of darkness. That was just devotional literature they wrote. The prize of the Dead Sea Scrolls is what's called the Isaiah Scroll. You know why it's called the Isaiah Scroll? It's a scroll of the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters, and it looks pristine. It looks like it just was done like five years ago because in the arid conditions by the Dead Sea, they packed it and they prepared it and preserved it. And so suddenly, and it's carbon dated about 150 B.C. So prior to Dead Sea Scrolls, Scott, the, the earliest copy of Hebrew manuscript we had of Isaiah was a thousand years after the life of Christ. And so we didn't know what the text was before then. Now, as an evangelical, my presumption is the stuff God inspired, God will and has preserved, and I have no doubt about that. I didn't, even back in the 40s, I didn't need that. It's a little before my time, not very much. But uh, but this was incredible, because suddenly we went from being a thousand years after Christ with the, for the first manuscript to being 150 years before Christ. Now, we're not still back to the original 700 B.C., but we're getting closer, and now we can compare the text as we had it in 1000 A.D. with the Dead Sea Scroll, Isaiah Scroll, and they're identical, like out of a Xerox machine, man. And all of six, all the six chapters are there. Isaiah 53 is there in toto. Isaiah 61 is there in toto. There's no doubt Jesus is reading prophecy from Scripture written before his life. This isn't post-dated. And so uh, it's incredible. But uh, watch this. The vast majority of people in the synagogue, good religious Jews, refused to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the promised Savior. And, but they were quite quick to criticize and second-guess how he was doing and what he was claiming. In response to this, he says, look, the miracles that I did in Jerusalem and in, in Capernaum, they confirm who I am, but you don't really need miracles. You know me well enough based on my character, um, content of my character, not the color of my skin. Um, you don't, you should, you have more than enough information is what he's saying there. I don't think he's, uh, wanting to give them more ammunition to blaspheme him so he didn't do a miracle. Then he could have, but he just didn't, I think. Sometimes just because you can do something doesn't mean you need to or have to, right? Now, the last couple of verses here, verses 28 through 30, we saw Jesus read Isaiah 61 at Sabbath services at church slash synagogue, their, their church. He applies it directly to himself, and now look at verse 28 through 30. And all the people in the synagogue, these good religious Jews, were filled with murderous rage. Got to kill him. As they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him up the brow of the hill, which overlooks the city. I've been there. Uh, 
Uh, you'll, we'll go there uh, next May. We'll, we'll down at the city of Nazareth from the brow of that hill uh, on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he he went his way. Uh, I, I've tried to watch most of the major movies about Jesus. I don't remember this scene ever being there, but I'd be curious to see how they would do the miracle. But I think, you know, what I take away from this as I read that, it's painful to read in a way, but uh, the truth hurts. The clear claims of Jesus as to who he was, he's leaving no doubt in their mind about what he thinks about himself, uh, just makes them so angry they want to kill him on the spot. They want to lynch him, we would kind of say in it today, without uh, due process of law. So in this murderous rage, they take Jesus to the top of the hill overlooking the city, a place they're very proud of, and a lot of them go up there to pray because they were so spiritual, uh, so they could throw him off the cliff and kill him. But then a major miracle takes place, and here's the thing. Uh, most of the ancient religious literature you read, uh, when it comes to miracles that the claiming happened, there's a lot of elaboration, discussion, and, and description of what was said, and people with magic words, and incantations, and beating on drums, and doing all these formulas to get these miracles to happen. Uh, when they're making up miracles in false religious literature that in the ancient world, they tend to really elaborate the details of the miracle. Uh, the New Testament, the Bibles generally, is very subtle. I mean, the authors make no attempt to explain how this happened because they have no idea how it happened, which means that, you know, a passage like this is, pardon the expression, pregnant with possibilities. I mean, this is a group of people that are loud, proud, probably using some profanity, but you can do that when you get really mad, no matter how religious you are, right? Um, it's not as bad as losing a softball game, you know, but uh, in the good old days. But uh, suddenly, the rage stops, the shouts stop, the uh, uh, nastiness stops, and Jesus just walks away. And what, what would that look like? I don't know, but here's the way I picture it. You've got, imagine 100 people, uh, and I'm one of them, and we're yelling and screaming, we're going to kill you, how dare you claim to be the Messiah? And they get him to the top of the hill, and then suddenly, God the Father just kind of goes, boom. Have you seen movies like this? They just stop the movie. And everybody just stopped. I don't know if this is what happened, but this is the way I picture it. They just stop. The guy who's going to throw the first rock, he stops there. And the guy that was going to kick, he stops there. And, you know, Jesus stands there, and they're all just standing there. And just, he walks and goes out of town, you know, have a nice day kind of thing, you know. Uh, I think there's something like that. Um, Luke, who writes this, tells you at the beginning of the book, I interviewed everybody I could about this stuff. This is one reason it tells you so much about what's in Mary's mind, Elizabeth's mind. I'm convinced he found them and interviewed them. So I'm sure he would have found some uh, people who remembered this, who had a historical memory of this. But he makes no attempt to describe the mechanism. But I think it was something like that. Because without changing their volition, God allows you, you know, to make your choices. They're going to hate him before and after this miracle, but they're going to kill him and that's not going to happen. Now some people say, well, why did God do that for Jesus here? But then when Satan tempted him to throw himself off the, t- the pinnacle of the temple, knowing God would protect him, why didn't he do that then? There's a category. Those aren't the same thing, are they, Blanche? Those are apples and oranges. He was saying, just presume upon God's protection of you and do a publicity stunt that will get everybody talking about you. Just throw yourself off. Do something reckless and stupid. And she says, no, you don't put God to the test like that. But here, uh, and you got to think of the love of Christ. I don't, I don't like rejection, okay? I mean, I was a, I've told you this. I was a salesman. I sold scientific instruments from the time I dropped out of Dallas Seminary until I uh, went uh, went to uh, dropped out of dental school and went to Dallas Seminary. I didn't drop out of Dallas Seminary. Oh my gosh! Don't <laughs> don't don't give me an excuse to take that degree away. Uh, yeah, I dropped out of dental school and uh, and went to Dallas Seminary. But during that eighteen month period, I sold scientific instruments for Ben's for uh, for what's his what does he call himself now? Saul Ben Hesed. He used to be called uh, Paul Sartwell, but he changed his name to Paul Ben Hesed. Paul, if you're listening to this, and he does listen to some of these, I love you, man. But yeah, I sold scientific instruments. Uh, my biggest sale, I sold. They had this big blood machine, and it would have looked, it would have looked like something from the uh, uh, Stone Age today. Trust me, it's a big machine that allowed you to do blood tests on cancer victims. It's called the Back Tech, 
And uh, I sold this thing to MD Anderson Hospital. Have you heard of it? I'm not making this up. Uh, and I was a terrible salesman. I had a rejection, man. Uh, and I, I really, one thing that taught me, I really respect honest salespeople. And he, even the telemarketers. Now, some of you guys, the one thing the Christians, we love everybody, but we hate telemarketers, right? You know, I always feel like, you know, they always call you at inconvenient times. But, you know, doggone it, this is probably a single mom. She's made bad choices with men. She's got a couple of kids. But rather than just waiting home for check, she's up there trying to earn a decent, you know, honest buck. And so I'm, I kill them with kindness, you know. I just say, I say, you know, I'm not interested in buying those chinchillas you're selling. But let me tell you, you've got one of the toughest jobs in the world. I totally respect what you're doing here. And, um, and some of them, some of them are directed specifically at churches to pray, pray, P-R-E-Y on the goodness of pastors because we're really, you know, we're paid to be good. And uh, I don't buy most of their stuff. I got a lot of sales resistance as an ex-salesman, but I'm, I always do it very nicely. I respect salesmen. But uh, whatever's happening here, this miracle happens. Jesus just walks out of their midst, and this isn't uh, like casting yourself off the pinnacle of the temple to make uh, do a publicity stunt and kind of presume on God. This is God being there, uh, God the Father, so that the ministry continues. Now, notice it says. Uh, Passing through their way, he went through their midst. That's the miracle. Very unelaborate on purpose. Luke has no idea how it happened. And again, he, maybe he couldn't find a witness that would go into detail, but he just says, boom, their plans were foiled supernaturally, and Jesus goes down the road. And then look at verse 31, and this is kind of leading us up to next week. And he came down to Capernaum, about 17 miles downhill to uh, a city, that city we just showed you some pictures of, that Homer took pictures of out of the helicopter, uh, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, right? He just keeps going. So he's not doubting, pouting, and giving up his ministry because somebody didn't like him. And I think that's important. So rather than hometown boy makes good, it's hometown boy made them good and mad. And that's too bad. But take this home for me, if you will, and take this to heart. 2,000 years later, some people rationalize their lack of interest in Christianity with the claim, and I've had people say this in so many words to me, if I could only see Jesus in the flesh, like the people in the Bible did, then I'd definitely be a Christian. But, and what's the problem with that? How do you react to that? Well, you're probably reading down below. I'm telling you how I, I would react. I tell them, you know what, that sounds good, but it doesn't hold any water, because most of the people who saw Jesus didn't believe in him for salvation. And you know, you might say, well, where, where would you find a passage where that proves that? How about Luke 4, the one we just looked at? That'll work. It's okay to use the one we actually study, you know, in church. I would, I would recommend that. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, I always love uh, the Gospel of John 9 through 12. He was in the world. He, not just the Messiah, but the creator of the universe. He was in the world. And he just looked like a Palestinian Jew, the God, man, Savior. He was in the world. And the world had been made through him. But the world, by and large, doesn't know him. The vast majority of people don't, get, don't buy it. He came into his own. The Jewish people who have Isaiah. He's not reading the Bhagavad Gita here. <laughs> he's not reading the Quran. He's got the Tanakh. He's got Isaiah 61. This is scripture. And he reads it and it says, but he came into his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. Talking just generally. There are many exceptions. John, Andrew, Peter, and Nathaniel, for example. But then he says, but to each one who receives him, Jew or Gentile, Nicodemus, too good to be saved? No, I was so good you don't need it, I should say. No, he needs it so bad she can't have it? No, but to each one who receives him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name and who he is and what he would do, right? So, uh, you know, that, I think some people use that as an excuse. Since I, they're saying I don't have enough information, but if I saw him, I'd, I'd believe him. And as I know you wouldn't, you know, if you're not going to believe, you're not going to believe no matter what happens. Uh, and it's just not true that people miss it for lack of information. God cares more about the salvation of your neighbor than you do. Now, you should care, okay? Uh, this morning, I took the, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, I'm, I'm a little sloppy in some areas, but some areas I'm just so obsessive compulsive, it's pitiful. And I don't, uh, as far as recycling, I don't like having empty Coke Zero cans on our counter. 
So it doesn't matter if we've got 10 stacked up, which doesn't happen because I won't let it happen, or just one. I'm always going to take that out. Anytime I pass by the kitchen, if there's anything that goes to recycle, I just do it right then. So this morning about 7.55, I walk out to my recycle bin, which is adjacent to my next-door neighbor's house, and he's out there pulling weeds. And, I, and it doesn't matter to me. And I'm not, I'm not judgmental. I guess sometimes with you people. But uh, but he, he, and he, I said, hey, good morning. And he said, good morning. He said, I know it's wrong to work on the Sabbath. And then, that's first thing, I, you know, I, thought, eh. I know it's wrong to work on the Sabbath, but I want to do this before it gets too hot. <laughs> and I went, yeah, you know, in, October, in August, you got to do whatever you got to do, man. I, <laughs> that's what I said, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, what am I going to say? I wanted to get that diagram out and explain the Sabbath doesn't apply to New Testament Christians and stuff. <laughs> It's actually Saturday, not Sunday. But, you know, sometimes just enough information is all they really need. Uh, but, uh, and so it's funny because when we moved in 30 years ago, when we moved in 30 years ago, um, he was very obsessive about his yard, obsessive about his yard, his grass. And uh, I mow mine, but I don't really do anything to it beyond that. And uh, I had two boys to raise. I wanted to play baseball and football in the front yard and backyard and stuff like that. This guy would not, if, if we were playing catch and Jamie threw it over my head and ends up in his yard, he would not let us get on his yard to get the ball. And he just would yell at us, scream at us, don't just leave it in the yard, I'll throw it in later, you know, as he's sitting on the front porch looking at us. So we went from that, and Chris Cranover warned him I was a preacher, and I think he's got preacher phobia. Talking about Islamophobia, the one I'm worried about is preacher phobia, yeah? That's a problem too, man. Nobody talks about that in the media. But, uh, I think he's finally decided we may be crazy, but we're not dangerous. And that's an important step in the process, you know. So, uh, you know, and he is a churchgoer sometimes, so uh, I'm not sure where he's coming from spiritually, but we're not close enough to get into a lot of detail beyond. And I'm going to have to clarify his whole false conception of the Sabbath, the first thing we do when we sit down. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm a theologian, man. I don't like stuff like that. But... Um, yeah, I like the example of Acts 10 where you have this Roman centurion in Caesarea, the Roman capital of the region. We'll see it. It's a beautiful city. Uh, and he seek, it, says, it says he's seeking God. He's seeking God. He's not regenerate. He's seeking God. And God ends up sending him Peter. Remember that old deal? But see, Peter was so convinced Gentiles had cooties, Peter wouldn't go to eat and talk to the Gentile in his house until God famously had this vision where all this non-kosher food was coming down, and he says, arise and eat what's been cleansed. You don't have to worry about the training wheels anymore. God took You can eat shrimp now, and it has no effect on your spirituality whatsoever kind of thing. But God cares more about the salvation of folks than we do. And I think some preachers won't tell you that because they're afraid if you tell them that, they're not going to witness to anybody. But uh, in general, we're called to share the gospel, and that's kind of plan A, but plan A prime is if and when Christians don't or can't get necessary information to true seekers, and God knows who those people are, it's part of the plan, uh, they're not going to go to hell for lack of information. Nobody's going to go to hell because they're dying in ICU, and since I live half a mile away, sometimes I will get random calls from ICU in the middle of the night to come pray with somebody, and they're not necessarily in our church. I remember the, the night they thought Bill Shelton was dying in ICU and Mitzi was on duty and I got a call about three in the morning, went over there and he said, what are you doing here? I'm not going to die tonight. I said, well, you know, that's not what I heard, but uh, <laughs> from the medical professionals, so they're not always right. But let's say, let's, let's, I, I can remember a couple times ministering in Puebla you know, when we did a lot of evangelism door-to-door, some of those campaigns, you know, you, you'd work five or six hours, and you're out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, there's a, it's almost, you know, time to shut it down, and you see one concrete block house that way, and one there. You don't have time to get above. And we go to one, and we share the gospel, Tomas, and the guy shares, receives Christ, and it seems very sincere and very real, and you go, man, it's so awesome to be able to see that and be part of that. And I, and I used to think, well, what would have happened if we decided to go over there? I guess that guy wouldn't have heard the gospel. Yeah, he wouldn't have heard it that day, but he would have heard it, you know? There's no way that the weakest link in God's sovereign purposes is my faithfulness, because I'm not always all that faithful. Maybe you people are, 
But I'm, you know, in other words, if I get a flat tire going to ICU to some guy who wants to hear the gospel, he's not going to die and go to hell because I had a flat tire, right? God will get the word to those who are going to respond. On the other hand, we have the privilege to be part of that. And if we sit on our hands, God will do it a different way, but we miss the blessing and, uh, and the opportunity to kind of be right in the center of what he's doing, right? So most people in the gospels, whoops, don't do that. Don't do that. Saw Jesus, but didn't receive him as we see here. God will give true seekers more than sufficient information. And Jesus is saying here, you got more than sufficient information. I'm not going to do a miracle just to entertain you here. You can accept what I'm saying because you should know me. So let me finish this way for sure. We kind of started with talking about rejection. The next time somebody or a group of people reject you and they should respect you and appreciate you, put yourself where Jesus is. He knew this was coming. He does it anyway because he wants to shine the light in Nazareth sufficiently. And so rejection is not someone wanting you out of their life. It's someone that God wanted out of your future. And I think I've been real therapeutic to somebody today, and I hope that'll help you. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, the the work, the life, and the character of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and for his wisdom and his profundity and being able to read that passage on the fly, seemingly, just happened to be the one marked for that Sabbath, and just to say, hey, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, knowing full well what was going to happen. So we thank you for who and what he is, the clarity of his proclamation. We'll often hear people say Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah, never claimed to be God. The disciples did. They made it up or they thought it, but he didn't say that. It's all over the place. So forgive us for not knowing that. Help us to know better. And also help us to be able to go past that surface objection that we will probably hear sooner or later. If I could just see Jesus like the people in the Bible, I'd be a Christian. Because that just ain't true. Most of the people then and now are not going to respond. But some will. They're yours. And you give us the opportunity and many chances, opportunities to to live it and share it in front of them. But we believe salvation is your program. It's your project. It's of your doing. And uh, you care for even our most uh, cherished friend or relative. We'd love to see come to faith more than we do. So uh, help us to realize it's not going to be for lack of information that anybody is separated from you. It's, uh, you're going to make yourself known to those who are going to respond. Uh, for those of us who have responded to the Lord Jesus Christ, just fill our hearts with a sense of your presence and your prerogatives in our lives this week. We pray for anybody who's not received him. Open their eyes, Lord, to see and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.